This is Sarah Lemon, author of the Holdish blog and food writer for the Meal Tribune newspaper in Southern Oregon. This podcast is produced through the Meal Tribune and Rosebud Media. You can find it online at mealtribune.com forward slash podcast and read my blog, The Whole Dish, at mealtribune.com forward slash lifestyle forward slash the hyphen whole hyphen dish. Spices inspired by global cuisines are one of the year's hot trends. That's according to a recent story that ran in the Mail Tribune. And it's also echoed in my most recent column for the paper's food section that ran January 13th, in which I invite cooks to travel without leaving their kitchens by exploring some of the spices that are essential to cuisines they may enjoy or to become familiar with an entirely new genre of cuisine based on purchasing the spices needed to produce it. That theme carried through my most recent blog posts and these podcasts with some recipes for Berberet, the indispensable spice blend of Ethiopia, as well as a couple of the country's iconic dishes that use the spice blend, a lentil stew known as Messer Wat and a chicken stew known as Dora Wat. But while the pandemic has also inspired cooks to become creative, it's also inspired cooks to make better use of what they already have on hand in their pantries or what they can easily keep on hand. And one of those seasonings is garlic powder or granulated garlic, as it's also known. This spice has been much maligned over the past couple of decades by many professional cooks who view it as a poor substitute for fresh garlic. Why use something that's dried out and ground up and stays in the spice cabinet for a year or so when you could use something fresh, juicy, and more flavorful? But in fact, it's pretty much any cook who's had occasion to use garlic powder versus fresh garlic, and that's almost everybody, it's pretty clear that the two are not interchangeable. There are certain dishes where fresh garlic just is out of place, and there are plenty of applications where it just doesn't blend with the other ingredients in the way that the cook intends them to. Flour dredges for batters are a great example that incorporate often salt, pepper, and many other seasonings to really bring out the flavor of the food. Barbecue and grilling rubs are another place where fresh garlic would just burn and it doesn't really do much to enhance the inherent flavor of the meat as it's caramelizing, unlike garlic powder, which has a totally different flavor from fresh. It's got this sort of sweet funk, as the LA Times put it, that's really essential to a lot of cuisines, namely soul food, and also it's found favor among vegan cooks over the past couple of decades who swear that that is the savory flavor, that is the umami flavor that is so essential on vegetables when you're trying to convince people who have been otherwise more of a carnivorous inclination to eat these sort of alternate dishes. And I couldn't agree more. I've relied on garlic powder off and on throughout the past couple of decades, 
but there still isn't a ground meat mixture in my kitchen, whether it's for a taco filling or whether it's for burgers that doesn't include garlic powder. It's just what goes in those things along with granulated onion, dry mustard, dry thyme, salt, pepper, and whatever other seasoning lends itself to the genre of cuisine I'm cooking. I enjoyed having a reason to post a recipe that really celebrates garlic powder, and it's for a classic fried chicken, which everybody loves. How do we not love fried chicken? It's one of those things that has done well for restaurant takeout during the pandemic because people are less inclined to fry chicken in their home kitchen when they can buy for usually a pretty good price, much better chicken than they can produce. It's messy, it wastes oil. There's just lots of reasons why it isn't at the top of people's list of sort of pantry staple, make at home classic dishes. But when it's done well, it's done really, really well. And I think a lot of cooks sort of go on a quest maybe throughout their careers for how to produce the absolute best fried chicken. I'm not so inclined to produce it in my home kitchen, but after seeing this recipe, I'm definitely more interested in continuing to try, particularly because this one is just so straightforward. It doesn't advocate a lot of brining or soaking in advance. It's very simply a flour dredge. If you prefer a thicker, crunchier coating, there is a buttermilk brined variation, but I think that this chicken is pretty spot on and ran in the LA Times last fall as an example of one of those dishes where garlic powder is just indispensable. Again, a classic soul food dish. I'll give the recipe for it in this podcast for garlic fried chicken. There's also a little bonus technique explanation for how to break down a whole chicken. I'll admit I'm not such a fan of doing that myself either. If I want to cook chicken parts and pieces, I usually buy just the dark meat because that's what I prefer. It's a little less expensive, the drumsticks and thighs, and my family's perfectly content with those. For a whole chicken, I just usually make it easy on myself and roast it and then sort of pick apart the carcass and do other things with it. Of course, finishing it off with a batch of homemade stock. But this recipe outlines pretty clearly how to break down a chicken. And I do think it's a skill that's well worth cultivating. It's many times less expensive to buy a whole chicken than to buy chicken parts and pieces, just as it's less expensive to buy chicken that's on the bone still and has the skin. Every step in the process that the meat industry has to perform for consumers adds cost. And this is only something I've become aware of within the past year or so, I would say, but chicken that has been handled and and other meat products for that matter 
more times by more people, again, more steps in the process is more likely to actually have bacterial contamination than a whole chicken, if you think about it. There's just more things that can be introduced along the assembly line. It makes total sense to me, and I think that's another great argument in the name of food safety for buying a whole chicken and breaking it down yourself. This recipe calls for a four to five pound chicken, or if you're going to just use the drumsticks and thighs, as I mentioned, that's about three to four pounds total. You'll also need two tablespoons plus a half teaspoon kosher salt. The LA Times cites Diamond Crystal as their preferred brand simply because kosher salts measure differently depending on which brand you're using. So they test their recipes using Diamond Crystal. That's their test kitchen standard. And if you use another brand, the measurement may not be exact. If you do use another brand, and, and I do, probably want to err on the side a little less salty just to be sure you can always add salt of course you can't really take it out of dishes too easily you also need a tablespoon plus two teaspoons freshly ground black pepper that's a divided use two and an eighth teaspoons garlic powder that's a divided use two cups all-purpose flour you're going to need six cups of frying oil whether that's vegetable oil peanut oil both high heat i like grapeseed oil for frying actually and i find avocado oil works well vegetable shortening is something that's very traditional in a lot of places of the country so the Times is giving credence to that, of course, as well as rendered pork lard for frying, which I think a lot of people have come around to the fact that while the American Heart Association still is not sanctioning animal fats, those are in their way being all natural, probably better than fats that contain trans fats, such as shortening. I think trans fat free shortening is becoming available. But if it were me, I would probably choose the, the lard, quite honestly. So six cups of whatever fat you're using. And yes, this is a large quantity. Start if you're using the whole chicken by cutting off the whole legs on each side, separating the thighs from the drumsticks. The best way to do this is to have a really sharp knife that you're comfortable handling and to try to find the places where the bones connect and you can feel where they move with their cartilage. You're not just hacking away indiscriminately. It takes a little bit of doing to figure out where that knife can kind of slip into a logical place where there's a joint and cleanly sever it. Next, cut out the backbone. You can do that with a sharp pair of kitchen shears as well. Then remove the center breastbone. There are a lot of YouTube videos demonstrating this process for breaking down a whole chicken. And if you're not familiar with the parts of the chicken or where the bones are, there's great visual resources out there, certainly. Have the chicken breasts to separate them. Then cut each breast crosswise so that one piece has a wing with about a third of the breast and the other piece has most of the breast. 
remove the tips from each wing if you'd like. Those tend to get overdone, whether you're roasting or frying. And you'll have about eight pieces total. Save the leftover bones, the remaining carcass for making stock would be my vote. Of course, you can discard it. If you're not in the mood for making stock on a particular day that you have a chicken carcass, it takes no effort virtually to put that into a gallon size Ziploc freezer bag and stash it away in the freezer until you're ready to make stock. Sometimes I'll get a couple of chicken carcasses that I'm ready to use and some other assorted parts and pieces. And it's very easily accomplished in a crock pot if you're home all day or a multi-cooker, an instant pot is a really, really ideal use for this. It can be accomplished very quickly and the smell is more contained in a multi-cooker like an instant pot rather than being dispersed throughout your entire house. So now that you have your chicken pieces, set them on a large cutting board and dry them thoroughly with paper towels. Season the pieces all over with one tablespoon of the salt, two teaspoons of the freshly ground black pepper, and two teaspoons of the garlic powder. In a large bowl or brown paper grocery bag, combine the two cups all-purpose flour, one tablespoon of the salt, and remaining tablespoon black pepper. Shake to combine. Add two chicken pieces to the bowl or the bag and toss to evenly coat in flour. Transfer the coated pieces to a wire rack set over a rimmed baking sheet and repeat dredging the remaining chicken pieces. If you want to do a buttermilk brined fried chicken, after butchering the chicken, transfer the pieces to a large bowl mixed with four cups buttermilk to coat. Season the buttermilk and the chicken liberally with salt and pepper, then cover and refrigerate for at least four hours or up to overnight. Drain the chicken pieces thoroughly before dredging in the seasoned flour using the process we just described. And for a thicker crust, you can return the dredged pieces to the bowl of buttermilk to coat, then dredge a second time in seasoned flour. Let that rest on a rack for 10 minutes before frying. So you're doing the same thing with the chicken, letting it rest, whether it's been buttermilk brined or just coated in the flour dredge. Let it rest for 10 minutes if you've dredged it only in the flour, then dredge the pieces a second time in the flour. Discard the flour in the bag, fold the bag flat and reserve it. In a small bowl, combine the remaining half teaspoon salt and eighth teaspoon garlic powder. That's for seasoning after the chicken's been fried. Set that aside. Pour the six cups oil or melt the shortening or lard in a large, deep cast iron skillet or heavy bottomed pot. And it should come about three quarter inch up the sides. Attach a deep frying thermometer or candy thermometer to the side of the pan and heat the fat over medium high heat to 375 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, some people will like flick a little piece of batter or flour dredge into the oil to make sure it's hot enough. You could certainly do that. Once it reaches 375, it it should be ready to go. Add only half of the chicken pieces though to make sure you don't bring down your oil temperature too much. And fry those, flipping them over every two to three minutes to prevent them from burning where they'll touch the pan. 
until they're golden brown all over and an instant read thermometer, not the one you're using for the oil, but another meat thermometer, a probe, inserted into each piece reads at least 160 degrees Fahrenheit. That takes about 15 minutes. So the temperature of the oil, as we acknowledged, will drop when you add chicken and then might rise too high as you're adjusting the temperature. So make sure that you're really monitoring that and trying to maintain a temperature throughout cooking between 350 and 360 degrees Fahrenheit. Transfer the fried chicken to the reserved paper bag or paper towels. The paper bag, of course, is like this classic old school kind of maneuver that just feels kind of cool when you do it in your kitchen. And sort of thrifty, I guess, savvy. That allows the chicken to drain, of course. And repeat, cooking the remaining chicken, allowing the oil to return to 375 before you add more pieces. While the cooked chicken is still wet with the hot oil, sprinkle it with some of the garlic salt mixture and let it cool for 10 minutes before serving. That makes four to eight servings of garlic fried chicken. Depends on how big your appetite is, whether that's four to eight servings. For a lot of us, it might be four. <laughs> and that recipe is courtesy of Tribune News Service. It was published in September in the Los Angeles Times. And that's the current post to my blog, The Whole Dish, at mealtribune.com forward slash lifestyle forward slash the hyphen whole hyphen dish. Look for that one posted January 22nd under the headline, Soul Vegan Foods Share Garlic Powder in Common. And find more globally inspired recipes on my blog and look for an upcoming column about specialty salts. Again, mealtribune.com forward slash lifestyle forward slash the hyphen whole hyphen dish. Thanks for listening to and reading the whole dish.